Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We hear a lot from policymakers, listeners, and even just friends about the crisis on our streets. Today, we want to present you with a different set of perspectives from the people who are doing the frontline work caring for people who are struggling with fentanyl and meth. San Francisco officials predict that 2023 will be a record year for drug overdose deaths. And we want to understand what's happening on the ground level, where first responders and emergency personnel are encountering people desperately in need of help. So stay with us and you'll hear from a panel of care workers with different views into the public health crisis in San Francisco. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Every day I walk into the office, I pass down Cap Street, right by the 16th Street BART, and I see a lot of different kinds of human suffering. People sleeping rough, doing drugs in various states of consciousness, just trying to make it through another day. Sometimes people are really angry. Usually folks just look miserable, sitting on makeshift chairs, dirty old mattresses on top of luggage. But the truth is that I, like most people who pass by, don't really know what's happening there. So... Today, we wanted to talk with people who work directly with people who are struggling with drug use, often paired with a lack of adequate housing and mental health care. Their perspectives are grounded in the work they do every day, and we thought we'd all benefit from hearing what they think should happen out there. Also, a disclaimer, just to be clear, all of them are talking with us as individuals to share their personal experiences, not officially representing their employers. Just FYI. We're joined this morning by Audrey Fisher, registered nurse in psychiatric emergency services at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center. Thanks for joining us, Audrey. Good morning. We're joined by Sam Gebler, firefighter and paramedic, serves as the vice president of San Francisco Firefighters Local 798. Welcome, Sam. Good morning. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're also joined by Claudia Mendez, behavioral health clinician at the San Francisco Department of Public Health. Welcome, Claudia. Good morning. Thank you. 
And Brittany Buckley, Stabilization Supervisor for the Opiate Treatment Outpatient Program at San Francisco General Hospital. Good morning. Um, So we're going to go around the horn here and have each of you kind of describe your job and how you kind of come up against this addiction crisis in the streets. And maybe we'll uh, we'll start with you, Sam. Um, how, How do you encounter people who are really struggling in this way? Sure. So uh, I work as a firefighter paramedic on a, uh, in the west side of town, but we all kind of move all over the place. Sometimes we're downtown. Uh, and the way we encounter this is whenever anyone calls 911, you have a fire engine, an ambulance, and depending on the severity of the call, you'll have a couple other people show up if needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are usually the, the first person there when uh, someone calls 911 for an overdose. So whether it's a uh, you know, a fentanyl overdose or meth or, or we don't know yet. Um, we kind of get on scene and our job is to figure it out and then, you know, do whatever stabilization we can, whether that's giving Narcan or using a, a bag or a tube down someone's throat or oxygen or whatever we have to do to kind of keep them alive and um, and try and reverse the, the overdose or whatever's going on. Yeah. Um, we're going to come back to each and every one of the people here, but let's go to um, Audrey. Audrey, tell us a little bit about your job and, and how you end up treating people with addiction. Yeah, thank you for asking. So my name is Audrey. I work at San Francisco General and Psych Emergency. Our unit is for people experiencing mental health crises, both involuntarily and voluntarily admitted into our services. We primarily function kind of as a triage center either stabilizing patients and then moving them forward back to outpatient services and connecting them that way, or towards inpatient stabilization through uh, continued hospitalization. That comes in contact with a lot of people who are using substances and may experience a a crisis related to that or unrelated to that. Um, And so we work a lot with the rehabilitation programs for substance use disorder within San Francisco and other counties. Yeah. And Claudia Mendez? I'm currently working in drug court where we support community members that are working out their cases instead of criminal court in what we call drug court or collaborative courts to support them in uh, working through their addiction and substance use so that uh, they can have a recovery and a strong support network and building new coping skills and linking to new services and community and community so that uh, substances do not cause them to have a case again, a criminal case. My longest amount of work has been uh, with street outreach Mm. and community work through Best Neighborhoods and what we used to call Street Crisis Response Team Office of Coordinated Care, which was the follow-up team to the red vans in the streets, Mm -hmm. the rigs. Um, So that's been my longest experience so far. I'm a little new at drug court, uh, but I did do two years yeah. of that. And, but like and street was, outreach meant like you were going, you know, to, to encampments or to different places like that where people might have been having a crisis. Yes. We would go look for clients that maybe the red rigs or the, our street crisis response team partners were going to identify as high um, certain community members that needed support. And we would go to the encampments to look for them. But meanwhile, looking for them, we also got to know community members and try to have familiar faces in the community to build rapport and help help restore the trust between the system and our community members in the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and Brittany Buckley, how about you? 
Yeah, I encounter this uh, starting at 6.45 a.m., bright and early. Mm -hmm. We are open for intake Monday through Friday Mm -hmm. at the General. Building 90, third floor. Mm -hmm. Um, Shockingly, I keep learning, like, no one knows where we are. So (laughs) that's where you can find us. Um, People can self-present for treatment. We also... Our encounters often start with referrals, um, some from Audrey's team over at PES and some from the street med team. There's an addiction consult team within the hospital. There's some really cool patient navigator programs that refer to us um, through the ED and for people who are incarcerated, so Project Juno and Houdini Link. So we work with a lot of those local providers Um to help connect people with care. And then people also just walk in Mm. often. I mean, when I'm going in to the building, there will often be someone sleeping out front because they wanted to make sure they would be there and be able to get a spot. Um, We do our best to get everyone in the same day, but the need's really high and that can't always happen. So it's impressive to what lengths people go to to really make sure they can get into treatment. Just a reminder for everyone, that's the Opiate Treatment Outpatient Program at San Francisco General, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, Sam, let's uh, go to you because this is kind of, I think, where uh, you have kind of the most, uh, the, the closest perspective to the one that I think a lot of us have, which is like you encounter somebody in the street who's going through sort of, um, you know, some kind of drug-related emergency, maybe a fentanyl overdose or uh, they're kind of it, it worked up on on meth. Um, tell us a little bit about how that work has changed, like how you've seen that kind of emergency come up in the mix for you as a paramedic in the fire department. I mean, obviously, I imagine you've responded to a wide variety of things, but now this is like kind of a really core part of your job. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's changed quite a bit over the years. I've been a paramedic for 15 years now and uh, worked on ambulances. Uh, fire engines, helicopters, whatever, whatever device you want to put me on, I'll I'll go out <laughs> on it. And uh, we've we've seen it just grow and and really become you know a lot more severe than in the past. Um, one of the uh, you know one of the funny things I tell people when they ask me how has this changed when I first started out, I remember Narcan being the drug that we give to people. Um, it was like hammered into us in school to be very careful with, with how much Narcan you give people to, to titrate, to never give the full dose. Uh, kind of comes in a little nasal spray bottle for folks out there, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, maybe a little spray, or, or we would give it IVs, never give the whole thing. Uh, we're super careful about it, because you didn't want to throw someone into withdrawals. And it's just changed so much to now, it's how many tubes of Narcan are we giving? How many sprays did it take? So it went from like being really careful with one to... You know, you might have to do three, four, five of these things. Uh, and, and the Narcan concentration has not changed at all. It's the same drug as it, now as it was 15 years ago. So. And so that's just like the potency of the opiate that people are using. It's not heroin now. Now it's fentanyl. And so it takes a lot more of the Narcan to sort of counteract the effect. Yep. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, how often are is one of these kind of calls coming in? I mean, is this like happening do you get one a day do you get you know is it different every day it really depends um <clears throat> i mean the fire department runs around 140 150,000 calls a year mm. so uh a significant portion of those are overdoses uh, especially if you're downtown on an ambulance you expect you know 
at least mm-hmm. a few. I mean, a lot of our calls, I can't put a specific number on it, but they're either directly or even indirectly related to the drug problem, whether it's, you know, injuries suffered from drug use mm. that, you know, now all of a sudden someone has a heart attack because they've been using meth for 10 years or whatever it is. Uh, or, you know, you do a kind of expect when you're downtown, you're going to have a few overdoses. Um, mm. One of the interesting things is some days, some days are a lot worse than others. Um, mm. You know, there might be a, an extra potent batch out uh, and and you'll kind of yeah. know in the first few calls of your day, like, oh man, my first three calls are overdoses. It's going to be one of those days. Uh, oh, and, and, you know, other days it might not be that bad. You might not have one at all, but, um, you know, sometimes you're like, all right, I'm just going to stuff my pockets full of Narcan because it's going to be one of those days. Oh, man. Yeah, you know, even sometimes here in the mission, uh, not so much with fentanyl, but with meth, I feel like, oh, man, there's something going on. There's just so many angry, yelling people in the street right now. It It feels like there was some, you know, it's a batch of drugs as much as... It seems more aggressive. Like, the the, everyone's just amped up. Yeah. You know, crazy. Extra crazy. Um, What's the most frustrating part of this job right now? Uh, I, that's a great question. I mean, we're, we're here to help people, right? That's what I signed up to do. That's what all the people I work with signed up to do. And, and I think it's really, it's really harmful and and really frustrating to me and my members when, you know, you get called out to try and help someone and you just see that same person over and over, uh, sometimes multiple times in one day, you'll, you'll give someone Narcan to the same person. And you're like, am I really helping you at this point? Like, yeah, you're, you're alive and you're breathing, but you know, it just seems so hopeless sometimes for some of these people to, uh, you know, ever, nobody chooses to go do nar- uh, fentanyl in downtown San Francisco. Like there's a, a lot of tragedy and a lot of heartache and a lot of injury that, that brings people to that. And, um, it, it seems like a very long road to get out, uh, mm-hmm. especially with how addictive this thing is. Yeah. And it also, it takes a toll on our members, you know, yeah. both uh, mentally, but also physically. I mean, when you reverse an overdose, sometimes people get very violent, very aggressive. Uh, uh, we have to restrain people. We end up getting punched, kicked, spit on. Um, yeah. And that's not what we're here for. We're here We're here to help people. We're talking with frontline workers about their experiences with and ideas for addressing our region's drug crisis. Joined by Sam Gebler, firefighter and, and paramedic. Vice President of the San Francisco Firefighters Local 798. We're going to hear from Audrey Fisher from San Francisco General, Claudia Mendez with the Department of Public Health, and Brittany Buckley, also with General Hospital, uh, when we get back from the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with frontline workers about their experiences with and ideas for addressing the region's drug and addiction crises. We're joined by Audrey Fisher, a registered nurse in psychiatric emergency services at Zuckerberg General. Joined by Sam Gebler, firefighter paramedic, VP of San Francisco Firefighters Local 798. Claudia Mendez, a behavioral health clinician at San Francisco Department of Public Health, who's worked in street outreach, as you heard in the first segment. And Brittany Buckley, a stabilization supervisor for the opiate treatment outpatient program at San Francisco General. If you're a first responder out there, we want to hear from you. I mean, what have your experiences uh, been like encountering people in in crisis or, or even, you know, getting out of crisis? Um, the email address is forum at kqed.org. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email again, forum at kqed.org. Um, Audrey Fisher, Tell us about a kind of typical scenario when someone comes into the ER. Maybe they've even brought by, you know, Sam or another kind of paramedic. Like, what what happens then? Yeah, so um, I appreciate my coworkers out in the field, Sam, um, making sure that our patients are able to live another day and, and hopefully move towards recovery. Um, patients are then brought into the emergency room. If they need medical stabilization, they'll stay in the medical side of the emergency room for a while. And then if there's any indication for additional psychiatric care, they'll come over to us. So these are the patients that might be experiencing psychosis. We often don't know if that's related to any substance use or if that's, you know, Mm -hmm. from a primary uh, psychotic disorder. And either way, it makes kind of no difference in Mm. the initial stabilization of those patients. Um, what we know is that they're unable to be safe in the community at this moment or that they're in distress. And so they bring themselves into us because they want to feel better and to be, you know, able to feel safe. Um, Have you seen, you know, one of the things we've heard on uh, previous shows was that the sort of cheapness and volume of meth in our communities has been leading people into kind of meth-induced psychosis at higher rates than before. Is that something that matches up with your experience or, or not? Yeah, I mean, we absolutely see a lot of meth-induced psychosis. Meth can make people feel very paranoid, have hallucinations. Part of that's related to the fact that maybe you're not sleeping appropriately if you're using stimulants. Um, but some of it is the the makeup of the drug itself. Um, and with chronic meth use, unfortunately, even in the presence of cessation from meth use, people still can experience chronic psychosis related mm. to meth. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a really dangerous drug. And um, obviously, there's reasons people use every drug that's out there. Like Sam was alluding to, you know, people aren't choosing to do drugs downtown San Francisco and overdose multiple times a day. You know, our patients often want to be discharged into different types of services, whether that's Brittany over at op- mm-hmm. outpatient opioid treatment program. But often they want an inpatient option. And that's or mm-hmm. you know, residential option. And that's because um, many of them are also concurrently experiencing homelessness. And they recognize that getting sober, quote unquote, or even decreasing your use while you're out 
you know, in the elements is just almost an impossible feat. Mm. And it can be dangerous depending on the substance that you're trying to to withdraw from. I mean, do you have those inpatient residential options to offer them? Yes and no. There are some, but they're very limited. And I think, you know, we're seeing in California with the addition of SB 43, which is the change to the involuntary Mm. conservatorship in California, we're now going to be including as of January 1st that severe substance use disorder is a cause for involuntary psychiatric holds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, whatever you think about that, the truth of the matter is there's nowhere for those patients to go. There are no locked substance use treatment programs in California outside of the prison system. Mm. And so, you know, my unit has really started to think about how this is all going to change in two weeks. Um are we just going to be full for the next year, two years until these programs can be built? Um, we don't know what we're going to do with these patients when the law is telling us we have to hold them involuntarily. They want to leave and there's no program for us to send them to. So that's a difficult what, position. To what make. are you going to do? I mean, like, are you really just, they just like this, that actually sounds impossible. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> oh man. Um, so is the idea that essentially they would just stay in the bed that they're in then because you can't, there's nowhere to send them, but right, you have but, to have a hold on them. But then what happens if there's no bed after that? And then there's no bed after that. And there's no bed after right. that. I mean, as we all know, everyone in this forum, there are not enough beds. Almost everyone experiencing homelessness that we see on the street might qualify under these criteria now because they also are specifically tailored that they disproportionately affect people experiencing homelessness and unsafe housing. So a lot of people are going to fall under this new law and we don't have capacity even for them to be in a voluntary program. But what is most disheartening to me is that California didn't offer patients reasonable outpatient services available to everyone or um, residential programs that are voluntary for everyone experiencing substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. And now we're moving to this this forced treatment that has not been proven to be effective in any way and can be dangerous if patients end up leaving with a lower tolerance and then overdosing upon discharge when they weren't ready or wanting to stop using substances. I mean, I think the reason we got to this place, right, at least from what we've heard from from callers over the last couple of years I've been doing this show, is just this idea that people refuse um, care. And um, there's, you know, there, there are people in my neighborhood who uh, are are refusing care, right? And and so um, maybe part of that is, right, because the care, like you're saying, the care that's available is not the care that people actually want. Like there's a huge gap between those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's possible. I also think that, you know, we have to, or from my perspective, this is, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's what you're here for. Um, Patient autonomy is is crucial, and people need to buy into their recovery if that's what they're ready to do. We, you know, we don't like I said, the evidence doesn't show that forced or coerced treatment for substance use disorder is effective. And so, you know, I understand witnessing this crisis every day is absolutely draining and horrifying, and this absolutely shouldn't be happening. But I think that we need to be focusing on our efforts on prevention and treatment for patients that are ready for it. Because we're going to just continue to see more and more people entering homelessness and severe substance use disorder in California while they have no availability for low-income housing. And we know that poverty 
is the number one reason people experience addiction in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I, I, I want to keep going down this line, but I also want to bring in uh, um, Claudia. Claudia, I mean, you've, you've seen people, um, particularly in your street outreach work, right? Um, you've seen people who have been in this position of kind of struggling with addiction, but also with kind of feels like they have limited options. What are the things that you saw that worked? Uh, well, first, I want to say, Audrey, I used to work in inpatient psych, so I feel your pain. And I, I, I you know, would say, what did they say, take, take my hat off for you guys. Uh, in street outreach, I definitely, what worked, I think, is they, one of the new programs was Best Neighborhoods was trying to bring familiar faces over and over again, the same people mm-hmm. to the community. We didn't have enough staffing, which is one of the hard parts. Uh, to make it really happen, to flourish what we wanted to see. Um, but having some people that cared, you know, mm. people that had a genuine care, like uh, social workers, health workers, everybody in the community, build those relationships. And there were some community members that kept declining services, declining um, care, any type of connection until they kept seeing our teams keep coming every day and checking in and building, you know, having some good laughs about and getting to know them past the addiction, past like them, you know, being on how experiencing being unhoused and uh, getting to know who they were before and in us being okay with also talking to them while we know that maybe the area that they're in is not very clean and they, haven't showered in days and, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes some of our community members haven't been able to have a, a regular conversation for a long time because of that, because people stay away from them mm-hmm. or the people that are coming are in some way abusing them or part of bringing them more substances mm-hmm. um, or they're being attacked by somebody. So having those conversations and building that rapport eventually uh, with some time and checking mm-hmm. in with them, they accepted services and they did accept like the tiny home, which mm-hmm. was probably one of our newest uh, programs that is, is not perfect, but it's way better than a lot of the shelters that are, are unsafe because there's a lot going on and uh, them having their own little one room to kind of restart and, and be cared for in a different way gave them some hope. Mm. Um, and we had uh, some community members even come out in the news later on sharing their story how uh, the community, uh, the city bringing community mem- uh, workers to work in the in specific districts to build relationships with them and then helping them connect the services actually changed their their trajectory and got into a good shelter, got a job. Um, but I also agree with also with, with my teammates here that it takes time. It can't be forced, and it, and I think it really requires a special touch. It can't be mm-hmm. forced or it needs time. People, it, addiction is not just the, it's not the drug. It's also sometimes it's grief, pain, mm-hmm. feeling alone. A lot of people come here because they know that we are maybe more open to supporting and um, mm-hmm. and and they want that connection and and support and so. Yeah, uh, that's what our part of the, our teams and best neighborhoods and the other teams are still out there that I may not be part of the team right now, but they I hear all about what they're doing and they're really trying. We're just so short staffed. Very hard to make it happen. Mm-hmm. 
but they're doing it. That's Claudia Mendez, behavioral health clinician with the San Francisco Department of Public Health. We've been talking with frontline workers about their experiences with and ideas for addressing the region's addiction crisis, also the toll that it obviously must take to deal with these things day in and day out. We're also joined by Sam Gebler, firefighter and paramedic, vice president of the San Francisco Firefighters Local 798. Audrey Fisher, registered nurse in psychiatric emergency services at Zuckerberg, San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center. We're about to hear some more from Brittany Buckley, stabilization supervisor for the Opiate Treatment Outpatient Program at San Francisco General. Do you want to hear from you? We'll get to some calls uh, in the next segment. Are you a first responder of some kind? What have your experiences been kind of encountering people struggling uh, with these new drugs. You can uh, send us an email, forum at kqed.org. You can find us on all the social channels. We're KQED Forum. Or you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. So, Brittany, um, your job, as you described it at the beginning, is kind of, these, you're, you're, these are people who want help, usually, right? Usually. Yeah. And what can you do for them? <laughs> Great question. So, Opioid use disorder is a chronic condition that is treatable. We we have evidence-based treatments for it, which is amazing. And especially having a medication, because we can't say that for everything like meth. Um, there's some cool studies going on right now, but it's really it's really special that we have this treatment available. That being said, I like I want to acknowledge Sam and Audrey and Claudia, like everyone spoke to. It's not easy. And there's a lot of research out there on the barriers to accessing treatment. Addiction is chronic and it's relapsing remitting. And most of our systems are set up with the mindset of like, well, you just decide I'm done and and it's this one shot. And so all, a lot of the regulations are set up for that as well. And we we've all seen and all described how that just doesn't work. We all often see a lot of the same people um, repeatedly. So what, you know, Audrey was talking about of someone experiencing psychosis, it's not uncommon for someone to come in first thing in the morning to do intake with us. And, you know, some of the things my awesome counselors are, are doing are just helping them get through paperwork while they're mm. experiencing that paranoia and are overstimulated. You know, um, Claudia was talking a lot about some of the challengers, just like think back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like mm-hmm. housing, shelter, food, uh, safety. Like, let's start there. The things we're asking of people to be able to access this life-saving medication is a bit absurd, in my opinion. <laughs> So, and yeah. that, medi- that medication in this case is methadone, right? Because it sort of helps with the physical aspect of addiction to opioids. Methadone and buprenorphine, yes. Um, so methadone is is a full agonist and buprenorphine is a partial agonist. But most people, especially in the era of fentanyl, um, are, seeking, are seeking methadone. Wow. So how many people are you able to help through this kind of outpatient methodology like do you do you measure it like in a day in a week like what's that look like uh we measure it in a lot of ways so it's it was a little jarring to hear that intakes had gone down around the city because that actually wasn't our experience at otop i'm proud to say our team actually 
uh, my awesome counselors were doing their 594th intake this morning for the year. And in 2022, we did 488. So that's a big jump um, in the number of people seeking treatment with us. Mm. We, it used to be, I, I started at OTOP as a counselor back in 2020, and I, I joined uh, the intake team as a supervisor last year. And it used to be the norm that we could do two, maybe three intakes in a day. Mm-hmm. I believe, and my team may, may correct me on this <laughs> later on, but I think we've done seven in one day. That's our record. And five, but five and sometimes six is not uncommon yeah. these days. And the really unfortunate thing is, as so many of you guys have already spoken to, we're understaffed and under-resourced. Like I'm, even those days we have seven intakes or six intakes, mm. I've potentially had to say, I'm so sorry to a couple people. We can't, we don't have the staff to complete your intake today. Man. Um, so at the top of the funnel is 488. Like how many people get to, I, you know, I know that the goal in for everyone is not always abstinence from all drugs, but how many people get to a healthy place in their life, however that is, however we want to define them? That's a really good question. Tell me it's more than zero. <laughs> it's definitely more than zero. Okay. I think I was talking with one of my coworkers this morning, and one of the beautiful things and why we love our job is it's so rewarding. You get to see people succeed and reach their goals every day. And that might be something small, or what might seem small to someone else, but it, it's so it's so impressive when someone's so excited they've come in and you know their UA is their urine drug screen is negative for the first time, or they've come in and they said I haven't used needles in a week, like I'm only smoking now. That's so much healthier for their body in 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 terms of some infection risks. Like there's definitely. Mm-hmm. There's other mm-hmm. risks we can go mm-hmm. down, but like little wins like that. Someone saying they got visitation back with their kids. You know, there's there's just so many positives in it. Um, yeah, man, gotta take the little the little wins. We um, do, and it's. I mean, that's one thing I love about our our clinic is this is really hard work, and I I appreciate the way our leadership sets up structures. Like our our team huddle in the morning, our morning meeting. Every single day, the charge nurse asks for staff appreciations and client hmm. successes hmm. because we got to keep we got to find reasons yeah. to keep going. Yeah. We're talking with frontline workers about their experiences with and ideas for addressing the region's drug crisis. Joined by Brittany Buckley, stabilization supervisor for the opiate treatment outpatient program at San Francisco General Hospital, uh, known as OTOP, I just learned. Uh, also joined by Claudia Mendez, behavioral health clinician at the San Francisco Department of Public Health. Sam Gebler, firefighter and VP of San Francisco Firefighters Local 798. And Audrey Fisher, registered nurse at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with frontline workers about their experiences confronting the drug crisis. Joined by Brittany Buckley, stabilization supervisor for the Opiate Treatment Outpatient Program at San Francisco General. Claudio Mendez, who's done street outreach, also now works as a behavioral health clinician with the Department of Public Health in the city. Sam Gebler, paramedic for 15 years now, uh, working for the fire department, uh, vice president of San Francisco Firefighters Local 798. And Audrey Fisher, a registered nurse in psychiatric emergency services at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. Let's bring in uh, Sherry in San Francisco. Welcome, Sherry. Hi, good morning, Alexis. I love listening to you. Oh, thanks for listening. Yes. Hello. How are you today? Oh, good, good. Tell us, uh, <laughs> tell us do you work in this field too? I sure do. I work um, at Henry Olaf House. Um, okay. I've been there a year and mm-hmm. it's on Steiner in San Francisco. It's been um, a help to so many people. And I was speaking earlier um, with the gal before I came on. Yeah. And yeah, your producer. And I was, um, you know, telling her that the trick is to get people as soon as they show signs of wanting to quit. You've got to get them right away. You can't let them sit there and think about it too long. You've got to facilitate getting them in as mm-hmm. soon as possible. Um, the disease is tricky because it'll sit there and lie and, and have its own way with someone. Yeah. And where did how did you get involved with this work? Like, how did you decide that you wanted to do this? Well, I'll tell you, it's been a lifelong journey. Um, when I was 28, I went into recovery. Um, I wish I could say I had that long of recovery time. Um, it took me a couple of years bouncing around um, between Oregon and California. I tried everything from hot, you know, Native American sweats to treatment centers. Finally, I, I got a, a foothold and used the AA program like it had been suggested to me. That's the mm-hmm. one that I find works for me. Now, where we are at Olaf, um, we encourage people to use whatever mm-hmm. type of recovery, you know, from Dharma, you know, to yeah. whatever, um, even non, non-AA, you know, mm-hmm. whatever they find that works for them. Yeah. Well, Sherry, um, thank you so much. I mean, it does seem um, also, you know, glad for your for your recovery as well and i think you know it's tough that idea of just getting people in the door right i mean do you feel like and may, maybe this should um go to you Brittany? do you feel like what what do you need to do like what do you need to do to get people in the door <laughs> um you know it seems like that that is a huge problem yeah making treatment accessible is definitely a challenge um Part of it is getting people in the door. I I think 
I'm not really in favor of pushing people through the door. So I guess more of when people show up, I want to have a kind, trauma-informed environment for them to be welcomed into. Mm. I mean, you show up at our clinic, our counselors are going to greet you, offer you coffee, water, Gatorade, Pop-Tarts, because we know you can't tell us much or engage in an assessment process if you're so malnourished and dehydrated that you can, you know, and probably sleep deprived that you, you can't really engage in that. So first, we're going to, we're going to start there. Maybe you need some clothes or or blankets or something else, Mm -hmm. too. We're going to try and walk you through the process. Um, So getting someone in the door and having an environment that's welcoming. So many of our patients talk about the stigma um, associated with substance use. And so we really just try and meet people. I mean, remember, there's so much more than their addiction. This is why they came into my Mm -hmm. office today Mm -hmm. is to get treatment for this. But everyone I meet, there's so much more to their story than just the addiction. And so I think approaching them as a human, not as a quote unquote addict, that Mm -hmm. I think is, is a big piece of it. And I think the second piece is not just getting people in the door. It's not kicking them out. Mm-hmm. It used to be, and there are some places where this is still the case, like if you test positive, you're kicked out of treatment. I'm like, how does that even make sense? <laughs> you're telling me this is the thing you're challenged by and you're trying to get help for it. But if you don't do it right on the first try, like, sorry, you're out mm-hmm. the door. The other thing is there's a policy on discharge. If you miss for two weeks and we can't find you, you're supposed to be discharged. This we were just talking about. This is a a cycle that a lot of people are stuck in, and it's a chronic condition. I, I mean, tell me another chronic condition where if you you know don't show up to an appointment, you get discharged automatically. Yeah. Like I have an autoimmune condition. When I miss my getting my quarterly labs done, I get a nice call from the receptionist saying, "Hey, can you come in? Like, just want to make sure you're okay." And I have a phone that I can pick up and respond to that and and get there and make that happen and yeah. take care of that. My patients, most of them don't have a consistent phone. I We try and do outreach and, and locate them, but mm-hmm. that's a huge problem. So yeah. let people stay in treatment if they want to be there. You know, but the difference between, you know, and your autoimmune disease, say, and some of what's happening in the streets is that there's this huge impact on, like, other people in the community, right? And I, Claudia, maybe I'll, I'll throw this to you. I mean, we, we had somebody call and then, and then drop who just, it's kind of like over, you know, homelessness and, you know, particularly people who like doing drugs in the street. And I mean, to be honest, in my day-to-day life, like walking around, I hear from all kinds of people, you know, um, that they, this is where they're at. They're in a place where they're just like, I'm over it. I don't want my kids to see people like smoking drugs on BART. I don't want to see people like shooting up, you know. Um, you know, outside my kid's basketball game, like they're done. If I'd, Now that you've done street outreach, Claudia, and I'm sure you also encountered neighbors who were like next to, you know, an encampment where drugs were being done. Like, what did you what did you tell people when they said like, you know, what what they blank? <laughs> you know, I need this to not be happening in front of my house anymore. You know, that's a very good question because it is a hard position to be in, especially when you're doing street outreach or any type of work that you're out there and the community kind of looks at you like, why aren't you doing something? 
And I let them know, like, we are, uh, I think the city's trying so many different ways of trying to make it happen and uh, different teams. There's a, a team for everything now um, and for housing, you know, trying to respond to overdoses and medication. And um, and I sometimes I apologize that even though it's not my fault, right, or this is kind of like a bigger issue, I hear them out that, even I, I'm from the city, I grew up here, and a lot has changed, and it's hard for me to sometimes get off of work and walk down certain streets and and worrying about my safety or mm-hmm. what I'm seeing. And um, and I, so a part of it I understand as a, as a, mm-hmm. as a person that grew up here. And uh, also just try to explain that we're trying to figure it out. It's a bigger issue. We have so many people also coming from other states and it's, uh, we're trying to figure out how to support them at the same time, support the community members that are from here. And how do we, how do we have create a more services uh, when we have a uh, backup, right? If they can't, if the hospitals can't find beds because there's no other, other programs, then they're backed up. Then they hold, you know, have mm-hmm. community members there. Then we can't get our clients in. And then we're just all in this tough space. So yeah. I keep, um, I mostly just try to remind people that we're trying to have compassion for ourselves, that what we need, but have compassion for the people in the community and have compassion also for, for the people trying the to workers <laughs> trying to help. Yeah. yeah. You know, the workers, our supervisors, I think it's just, I, it's, it's such a big project issue and struggle that we're all trying to how yeah. to figure out i keep thinking that personally i think that we don't have enough community support of how um how to help people that don't have families or mm-hmm. connections with their families there's a lot of pain mm-hmm. and the pain is causing a lot of um addiction and loneliness mm-hmm. and um you know there's a big percentage of community members that are in the street that are former foxes, right? And mm-hmm. like right now, the holidays are here. Mm. And, you know, people are going to go have lunch, uh, dinner and holiday parties with their loved ones, but other people are not. Mm-hmm. So I think remembering that, um, yeah. but it is very hard. I, I can't, I don't have children. I can't imagine walking my children down certain streets too. I think, you know, it's also explaining and I think it's yeah. children will learn over time too. That there is a lot of pain. Um, we need to figure out a way to heal our community yeah. in other ways, too. I mean, Sam, um, if you had a family member who was struggling with, you know, fentanyl addiction or, or who was on meth in, in San Francisco, I mean, what would you do? Do you think you could find them services in San Francisco? Do you think you would want them? Like, what would you do? I'd get them out of San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, there's a reason they don't do AA meetings in liquor stores. Right. Yeah. If you're right by the thing all the time that you can't get away from, it's hard, harder to get away from it. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of sympathy for, you know, the, the voters are fed up and uh, the, what they see on the streets is is really difficult. Um, they they hear that, you know, there's buses of people being shipped into San Francisco that have all these addictions and all these problems. And now they're expected to foot the bill to, to save you know, people from all over the country. Um, so it's, you know, it's a very frustrating situation. And then for our members, we, you know, if there's a, 
if we're on a call for someone and there's a fire or a, a rescue or mm-hmm. anything else, you know, we're legally bound to stay there with that person. I can't abandon a patient. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, that causes Has delays. A kind of ripple and, effect through the yeah, system. Yeah, causes a lot of strain to the system. And, you know, we get busier and busier every year. Um, and there's no more new firehouses popping up. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, the strain's felt by uh, mainly by our members that are on the front lines that are, you know, now just going from call to call to call and, and, you know, the, the burnout, the injury, the, uh, you know, the, the traumatic things that you see as a firefighter and a paramedic are already bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you just keep adding more and more and more on them. And so mm-hmm. we see a, a huge increase in our own members that go off on stress or PTSD or PTSI. And, um, yeah, i I don't think there is an easy answer. <laughs> there yeah. was a 10 year plan to end homelessness 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hasn't gone well. So, you know, I think if anyone had a magic button solution, it would, it would be done. But, um, I, I don't think you can underestimate how truly addictive that fentanyl and some of these drugs are. And, um, it's not like, you know, your, your mom quitting smoking 30 years ago, which is also terrible. Which and was very hard addictive. enough. Hard yeah, enough, right? right? Yeah. You know, this is something that like, you will see people do absolutely anything to get more of um it's it's pretty tragic when you see it so yeah let's get uh to a couple more calls here alan in berkeley welcome hi thank you i want to express deep appreciation gratitude for your panelists and all those that are on the front lines of dealing this with this and also great compassion for people who are addicted. I know the causes are really complex as some of your other callers and the speakers have, mm-hmm. have mentioned, but my, I have two points. One is that I think there needs to be a cultural shift in terms of our social contract, you know, cause it seems like we've had a big cultural shift, at least in the Bay area in terms of what, you know, what is socially acceptable behavior? in public. And I know that this might sound a little heartless or something like this, but um, it, it just seems, it just seems like um, our leaders haven't, some of them have spoken to this, but I think until there's a broader cultural shift, um, and of course there needs to be support services for these people, when this leads to my second point, I read, you know, when I read in the Chronicle that our budget for addressing homelessness, and I know some of it is for direct housing yeah. subsidies, is about a billion dollars, almost a billion dollars yeah. a year. And I know there's, it just, and with all the wealth that we have in the private sector in the Bay Area, and given, you know, it's several thousand people that we're talking about here. It and does. I know it, no, it, no, no. It, I know what you're saying. It's like, it seems like there's so much money going in at the top. Mm-hmm. And yet every single time we have frontline people on, every single organization. And thank, thank you for that, Alan. Really appreciate it. I think you're representing the perspective of a lot of people out there. Um, he, I don't know if we're going to get to the budget issues in this particular um, uh, moment. I did want to say, I, you know... Um, Audrey, if when we think about that social contract piece of this and socially acceptable behavior, I mean, part of the problem is, right, like, what are we willing to do to enforce those social norms, right? It would, like, 
what do you do? Um, how do you try and do it, deal with that in the hospital where you don't want people to be, say, doing drugs or, or other things? Yeah, well, we're unique in psych emergency that uh, patients are not able to have belongings with them because it mm -hmm. can pose a risk. Um, if they're a danger to themselves or others, we can't have belonging there and we don't want to search their belongings. So we just take it all and give it back to them upon discharge. And so there's limited ab ability for patients to actually use any drugs while they're in psych emergency. But I know that that's an issue for my colleagues in other places in the hospital where patients have their belongings with them and they may continue to mm -hmm. use while they're in the hospital. Um, part of that, I think, is a failure for our opioid replacement treatment while in the hospital. Patients coming in with, let's say, heart failure shouldn't have to choose, am I going to withdraw from opioids or continue to live with my untreated heart failure? You know, mm -hmm. you should be able to get treatment for one chronic disease while deciding not to treat another. You know, so that's, that's one thing I'd bring up. Um, in terms of, like, in the community, you know, from a harm reduction approach, we did try to propose safe use sites in California, and that was vetoed by Gavin Newsom. So for our homeless population who are physically addicted to substances, there are very limited options for them where they can go to use them. Is it inappropriate for people to be using substances, open air, on public transit, on busy streets, you know, where children are walking around near schools? Absolutely, like that is not any way for a city to be operating. Um, it's not any way for our children to be like walking around and witnessing, but we just have not allowed for other alternatives to be, you know, be given to these individuals where we can then enforce them to not use mm -hmm. in these in these areas. Mm -hmm. I think also, you know, the frustration that we all feel in San Francisco is extremely valid. And I think that we often feel it towards the individuals who are symptoms of this failure of the system, mm -hmm. because that's what we see day in, day out. Yeah. But I think it's a it's a cognitive decision every day for myself, too, when I see patients who've been admitted 22 times this month, to mm. remember that this is not their own failure. It's our failure as a city and as a, a government that we have not provided services that have been able to assist this person to not go to the emergency room 22 times in a month. Yeah. Last uh, comment from Margaret who says, all the love and massive appreciation to your guests and a million thanks for their chosen vocations. My son, now 54, after years of being on the street in the lost life of drug destruction, was conserved last year through an outreach program in the county he was barely living in. He's now indoors getting help. So far, so good. Yet more thanks to all your guests and their and their good hearts. We've been talking with frontline workers about their experiences with and ideas for addressing the region's addiction crisis. We've been joined by Audrey Fisher, uh, registered nurse in psychiatric emergency services, Sam Gebler, a paramedic with uh, San Francisco Firefighters Local 798, Claudia Mendez with the San Francisco Department of Public Health, and Brittany Buckley, stabilization supervisor for the Opiate Treatment Outpatient Program at San Francisco General. Thank you all so much for giving your perspectives. Thanks, Alexis. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera, 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.